Just before you listen to this episode of Hollywood Sources, let me tell you that you can come and join us live for a special recording on the 21st of March as we mark 25 years of devolution. Already confirmed, Alex Salmond, Jack McConnell, Henry McLeish, all former First Ministers of Scotland, of course. You can hear them in conversation, ask them your questions, make your points as well. Come along and see us. Get your tickets at hollywoodsources.com forward slash live. Hollywood Sources is proud to be brought to you by the Scotch Whiskey Association's Made to Be Measured campaign. Did you know that the recommended weekly limit of 14 units of alcohol equates to five pints of beer at average strength, or one and a half bottles of wine, or 14 single measures of spirits? If you didn't know that, well, you're not alone, actually. The majority of people who choose to drink alcohol do not know how many units are contained in the most common drinks. Informed consumers, though, make more responsible choices. And so the Made to be Measured campaign is supporting people across Scotland to understand more about the units in their glass. Made in Scotland and enjoyed around the world, Scotch whisky should always be enjoyed responsibly. Find out more by visiting scotch-whisky.org.uk forward slash made to be measured. I mean, our vote uh, is strong, but it needs a reason to come out and to make sure it votes uh, for us. And there will be uh, tactical voting in a seat that's often changed hands between ourselves uh, and Labour. But uh, yeah, Labour are, 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 I think, complacent, and that's a dangerous place to be. Hello and welcome to Hollywood Sources. I'm Callum McDonald. We're recording on Wednesday the 23rd of August. Thank you for finding us. If you are brand new as a result of finding the episode with First Minister Hamza Yusuf last week, then welcome. Thank you for finding the podcast. Thank you for following and subscribing. The whole idea is that we're here every week to analyse Scottish politics for you with those who have lived it, those who have breathed it, those who know what they're talking about. So on the podcast is Jeff Aberdeen, former Chief of Staff to Alex Salmond when he was First Minister. Hello, Jeff. Hello, how are you doing? And can I just say, um, I, I, I know I go on about my newborn a lot and I apologise for that, but I've got a swing in my step today because for the first time we got unbroken sleep last night, he slept from 11 o'clock until half past five. I'm utterly delighted. Wow. Feel like I've eaten my Weetabix. You do seem very cheery, actually. That's great. Well, uh, special mention to him. That's great. Uh, also on the podcast, Andy McKeever, who was Director of Communications for the Scottish Conservatives. Hello, Andy. Hello. I'm always cheerful because you, know, <laughs> you set your expectations low when you're Director of Communications for the Scottish Conservative Party. So I, I, I always wake up happy. Ever the Jeff optimist. Is generally, gen, Jeff is generally a pessimist, as we'll find out a little bit later in this podcast, actually, won't we? Uh, but I'm glad he's having a good morning. I'm glad Lucas is sleeping well. It's nice to see Jeff smiling. Thank you, Larry. <laughs> Yeah. There was uh, there was <laughs> there was a lot of talk uh, following the Humza podcast last week, uh, which you can watch by the way on YouTube. Just search for Hollywood Sources on YouTube if you've not heard it in your podcast feed already. There was a lot of talk about Jeff's facial expressions being full of concern during the podcast episode with Humza last week. Yeah, contorted is the word I would use. Yeah, I've had a number of comments from people who watched it saying, <laughs> um, I don't hide my emotions well. It's why I would never make a good politician, incidentally, because um, I don't. I wear my emotions on my sleeve. I always have. And um, if I hear something that I don't agree with necessarily, I'll let people know. 
By wincing. <laughs> by, by wincing. <laughs> you had your head in your hands at one point. Uh, anyway, well, that was, a, that, uh, was a your, that was a your cheering, by the way. That was nothing to do <laughs> with what was said. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks very much. Yep, I'll take that. Uh, coming up on this week's podcast, then, uh, in a little bit, we're going to look into, uh, we're going to dive into a poll that Jeff's uh, company, True North, has done. Uh, some quite interesting findings from this latest polling, actually. So we'll dig into that for you. Uh, we've also got news, as Andy's just teased, of a bet, in fact, two bets between Andy and Jeff as to the electoral results. We'll find out which way that might go based on the polling a little bit later. Uh, Plus business and Tom Hunter and corporation tax and these sorts of things will be discussed before the end of the episode as well. Uh, Thank you very much for being there. If you'd like to email, you can email questions or analysis or whatever. The email address is hello at hollywoodsources.com to get in touch. I cannot believe it has been a week since we were all um, sitting with Hamza Yusuf in Edinburgh at the Johnny Walker Experience uh, on Princess Street in Edinburgh uh, to question him with... With you, a hundred of you were there. It was brilliant to see you all, and thank you so much for coming. Uh, just by way of starting this episode, though, we just kind of want to pick out a few of the key moments of last week's podcast with Hamza and get a bit more analysis from Jeff and Andy. Uh, there was a bit on the night as part of the episode, but I think it's always good to just do a little bit more detail. And I think on some of the key themes that we've been talking about on Hollywood Sources, really since we launched, if we're honest, uh, is, is where we've kind of picked out some of these clips. Let's start, first of all, by, by the part of the podcast where we were talking to the First Minister about the Scottish government, the makeup of it, and the relationship between the SNP and the Greens, which has come under continued scrutiny, particularly over the last few weeks, but, but really since he became leader. Uh, have a listen. Here is the First Minister. Will the Butte House Agreement still be intact come the 2026 election? Yes. It will? Yes. Fine. Good. Uh, Do you accept that the Greens exert influence on the direction of the Scottish Government? They are part of the Scottish Government. Yes, on the SNP... They are, the they are government. part of the Scottish government, so there's no doubt that they exert influence. Right. If you're part is it of the too government, much influence? Uh, no, I, I believe that they absolutely have influence. I think they push us to go further on certain issues, which is no further bad Further than thing. you'd like? No, further than, than, than perhaps we've committed to in our manifestos, perhaps further than we thought we would go to. Not that's further not, than we'd it? like. It's further than what's in your manifesto. That's not, jarring for voters. No, I don't, think that is, I don't think that is, because people want to see political parties work together. We have this agreement. Uh, cooperation agreement. We were voted in as a minority government. We mm. have to accept that. Not far off a majority, but voted in as a minority government. So therefore, uh, the message is you should cooperate with other political parties to progress your political agenda. And what, what, working with the Greens. What three words would you use to describe Lorna Slater? Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure why, but I'm not sure why some in the audience, because Lorna, I'll come to the three words in a minute, mm. but Lorna uh, is somebody who faces I mean, I've seen it, a lot of misogyny uh, in that parliament. There's still a lot in there uh, in that parliament, uh, but somebody who works incredibly hard. So I would say she's absolutely hardworking. Uh, I would say she's diligent in terms of detail. And I would say she is incredibly compassionate in terms of her politics. Uh, we'll give you hardworking as one word. I think sometimes it's hyphenated, I suppose. Uh, so that is Hamza Yusuf talking about the Greens. I, I thought there was quite a lot of interest in there, Jeff. First of all, that that part that he kind of conceded that the Greens maybe take the SNP to places that they they hadn't necessarily committed to in their manifesto, which is intriguing. Yeah, I... Well, first of all, I just want to reflect on the podcast in its entirety. And again, I think we we owe our gratitude for Hamza for turning up for his candour. I thought he performed pretty well overall, uh, given that, you know, Andy, myself and you 
we gave him some tough questioning at times and I thought overall he performed very well I thought the uh, sections in terms of which he talked about the Green Party relationship were really interesting he's clearly committed to this deal seeing out the next uh, until the next uh, election other factors um, may suggest that that could be challenging and I know we'll go on to talk about the poll shortly but that's a key finding of the poll that my company have published I think what my biggest reflection on this and we've said it before on this podcast is if he's going to continue with the green relationship fine absolutely okay that's his prerogative but he needs to explain better and the government needs to explain better what it is doing to enhance and improve the lives of everyday Scots because every time the green relationship is mentioned just now it seems to be in negative terms so that has to change tell us why it is all worth our while and I did challenge him on the parliamentary arithmetic and having the votes and all the rest of it I don't think that means anything to people out there I get why it means a lot to the Scottish government but that doesn't mean to people uh, much to people on the ground punters around the country so I do think it needs to be uh, communicated in much more positive terms and tell you why, why there's real benefits for the people of Scotland Andy, what did you make of, of the First Minister's responses on the Greens, which, as we say, has been topical, it's faced a lot of criticism from uh, members of his own party, and it could be something that becomes a real focal point at the SNP party conference in a couple of months' time as well. How did he, in your view, how did he handle those questions from us last week? Um, I, I, I thought he handled the whole thing okay. Um, it was, as we said at the start of the podcast, it was an opportunity for him to uh, give us a little bit of vision in a format that he won't really have been offered before because it was A, long, uh, and B, not awkward. Um, I think this is really about what the purpose is of this agreement. And you could ask two or three different SNP people what the purpose is of this agreement and get seven or eight different answers out of it. The most common answer you get when they're being candid is it's a numbers game. They want life to be easier inside the parliament. Um, and there is no question that if you measure it purely by how easy it makes your life inside that parliament, how easy it makes to pass votes, how easy it makes to pass budgets, how easy it makes it to avoid votes of no confidence, then it's a big tick for this coalition agreement because it does all those things very well. But that's not really what politics is all about. It's about what happens outside the building. Um, and I think it, it remains very unclear what the arguments are in favour of it judged by the impact it's having on people's lives outside the building. Now, um, one of the most interesting things I thought, and you sometimes do hear this from SNP people, is they talk about green issues, sustainability issues. Now, I don't think the SNP needed any green injection into their policy platform. The SNP had a very credible, climate-friendly, sustainable policy platform anyway. I don't think they needed any help. And you remember in the podcast last week, and if listeners haven't heard it, it might be worth um, having a listen back, I tried to clarify with Hamza that Green Party policy and Green policy should not always be regarded as being the same thing. And he eventually acknowledged that, but I thought he was in danger of slipping into the trap of saying, we are in coalition with the Green Party, ergo we are a Green government with green policy. But that's not always the case. For example, 
Uh, we know from the discussion that has been had in Scotland in the news over the last couple of weeks about um, uh, heat pumps uh, to replace gas boilers in homes. One of the reasons why that's happening is that the Scottish Government and Patrick Harvey have ruled out hydrogen boilers um, on the basis that he doesn't like blue hydrogen because it is created as a result of carbon capture and storage, which is obviously not Green Party policy. But a lot of environmentalists think that hydrogen boilers created out of blue hydrogen is a good thing for the environment. A good thing. Uh, And we'd be very supportive of hydrogen boilers. So there's one very practical example of how Green Party policy and Green policy are not always the same thing. And I think Hamza and other people in the government are in serious danger of uh, assimilating those two things when they may not actually be uh, the case. Holyrood Sources is proud to be brought to you by the Scotch Whiskey Association's Made to be Measured campaign. I want to move on to uh, one of the other parts of the podcast. Of course, on the episode last week, we did have more than 100 people in the room and you were submitting questions as we went through the episode and uh, got to ask your questions of the First Minister. And I think there was a really standout moment when Philip asked his question. Here it is. Thanks very much, Philip. Thanks for being here. What's your question? Uh, First Minister, I travelled from Inverness today, a journey I've probably made 2,000 times in my life. And for the last five years, I've had to pass a point in the road where I was the first in the scene of a head-on collision and someone died in my arms as I was giving them first aid. When will the promise of the Highlands to duel the A9 and the A96 be delivered? Yeah, I'm sorry you had to go go through that. So I can't pluck you a date. I can't tell you a date when the A9 uh, drilling will be complete or the A96. I will say more about the A9, uh, particularly in the programme uh, for government. I hope to say uh, more about the A9 uh, in particular. And that commitment uh, to dual A9 and A96 continues to be our party policy. And uh, particularly on the A9, there's just no argument about the fact that that uh, commitment is cast iron. On A96, uh, invest in air, including the air bypass, again, there's no disagreement or argument uh, about that. For the other sections... Yeah, we are looking at climate compatibility because it is important, uh, given the fact that we're going to have to take some really difficult decisions um, right across every single portfolio, not just transport, but we look about heating buildings, uh, agriculture and so many others if it comes to meeting our really ambitious and world-leading climate change uh, targets. But I can give you an absolute promise, and don't take my word for it, I mean, judge us by our, our deeds for sure uh, when it comes to, to, to dueling of the A9. Um, that is going to be a significant uh, priority for us. Uh, and for me and, and, the, and the administration uh, that I lead, as well as uh, making progress on the A96. So uh, without um, giving an exclusive to, 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 to these guys, um, just watch this space uh, in, in, in a couple of weeks' time. I hope okay. to be able Thank to say you. more. Jeff, what did you make of, of, well, the many parts of that? First of all, it's a ca- you know, cast iron guarantee, more to come in the programme for government, a little bit more equivocal perhaps on the A96 than the A9 in that answer. Yeah, it was. Um, listen, it's a harrowing uh, question and it just does bring to bear that politics has a real impact on people. And, mm-hmm. and I, I, I thought the way that Hamza handled that question was fair enough to a certain extent. I'd have preferred if he just said, do you know what, this is what we are aiming to do in the A9 and on the A96 it may take longer and just be a little bit more upfront. Um, and then, you know, a, a lot of the climate stuff that you said there, all very important, don't get me wrong, but somebody's just raised a question about somebody dying in somebody's hands. And I just would have liked to see a lot more, perhaps a little bit more empathy and then right to the point and what my, my answer is. 
Um, I don't know what the programme for government will hold. None of us do just yet. But um, I travelled the A96 on Sunday uh, from Forest to Aberdeen. It's a hellish road as well, you know. Um, and, you know, we are going to need uh, uh, better roads for electric cars uh, when they're at mm-hmm. scale. And we've got, we've got to make sure we don't forget that. So I would like to see a commitment to that road as well. Uh, only time will tell. But I think certainly, given where the, the focus of the political pressure is on this, I think the A9 will definitely be in for some uh, more positive news, not least because of the pressure that Fergus Ewing is bringing to bear, as he so eloquently put it in our podcast. But I think we're going to need the A96 as well soon. And, and not just that. Uh, Scotland's... I mean, yeah, yeah, good point. Let's put this in context, right? Scotland's trunk road network is absolutely dismal. Um, and that is not only the failure of the SNP, it's the failure of every government of every colour for many, many decades, and it's the failure of Scotland offices of both red and blue colours in the years before devolution. Transport infrastructure in Scotland has been starved. Transport infrastructure everywhere outside the M25, let's be honest, has been starved for a long, long time. And actually devolution was a chance to do something better and different because you have Barnet consequentials that allow you to actually make... Uh, different choices so you know for every Elizabeth line a tenth of it could be spent doing something in Scotland that's worthwhile but I think the most important thing here and again it's not entirely different to the uh, point I just made about about blue hydrogen and boilers if there's one thing I mean you know Alex Salmon comes in for a lot of criticism and a lot of it let's be fair is very justified but if there's one thing Alex Salmon was good at it was understanding the nuance of how to govern governing is not campaigning is different. It's not a black and white binary issue. When you're governing, you've sometimes got to be a bit cute about how you do things. And the truth is, you know, I, I drive the A9 a lot going up to Lewis, um, all the way from Perth to Inverness, that whole stretch. It's called an electric highway, which is a bit of a joke. There are very, very few chargers. I've got an electric vehicle. There are very few chargers um, in, on this electric highway. And of course, this electric highway is also the, you know, the deadliest road uh, mm. in the country. If you want to have a massive revolution in the electric vehicle industry, you need to build roads for them to go on. Not least because they're actually heavier and bulkier cars and you know they're a bit more damaging to roads anyway. You've got to, you, the road network has to be more robust for electric vehicles, not less robust. And it's an, another one of these issues where we try to treat things in this black and white way. Roads are bad for the climate, ergo we will not build roads anymore, which is pretty much the current position of the government when it comes to trunk roads. But how do you then have your electric vehicle revolution? How do you account for the fact that actually in a lot of these trunk roads, the slow speeds and the stopping and starting are causing larger CO2 emissions than if the cars were able to flow more freely? So, you know, again, I, I agree with Jeff, and I think Hamza hinted very heavily. I mean, put it that way. If, if somebody listened to that podcast last week, will be expecting that the programme for government will have a pretty significant announcement on the A9 in it yeah. because of mm. what Hamza said last week in that podcast. So I think a yeah. lot of people will be listening out for it. But final point on this before it turns into a rant about roads. Um, <laughs> I think I think that ship has sailed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah. That, that this electric car has been charged. About, Go on. Exactly. Actually, it has, it's been charged right behind me there. Um, this is not about money. This is about choices. So let's have, I'm, I'm getting really tired of politicians saying there's no money to do X. Well, there is money to do X. It's just that you're choosing to do Y. 
Okay, so that that's a really important point. This road can be this, you know, the, a massive program uh, of upgrade could start on this road right now if the priority was given towards it, or if more creative funding solutions were found to do it, like a private funding solution which led to the road being told. I know that I would pay to drive up that road if it was jewelled. I know a lot of people who drive up that road would pay, but of course it becomes an ideological issue. So let's not have any more of the, there's no money to do X, Y or Z. There is money. This is about priorities, choices. Well, the full episode with Hamza Yusuf is obviously still available for you in your podcast feed, or you can watch on YouTube as well, and you will hear more from him as we go through today's episode as well. At this point, though, let's consider the poll that is out today. It was done by Servation on behalf of a strategic advisory firm called True North, which has got a decent no, reputation on. It's got a, de- it's got a decent reputation on this podcast. <laughs> uh, so, so it's out and about. Um, I suppose a couple of the top lines from this, the headlines from this. The SNP's dominance of Scottish politics appears to be over, is how the Times reports it, uh, according to this poll that suggests that Labour and the Nationalists again from the Times, would win the same number of MPs in Scotland at a general election. The research finds that although the SNP is still narrowly ahead of Labour in terms of popular support, just two points separate the parties. The numbers on this, the SNP backed by 37% of the public, 35% say they intend to vote for Labour. It's the highest level of support for Sir Keir's Starmer's party since 2014. Um, Andy, let's come to you first on that, actually. What do you make of that as, a, as the first headline to pull out from this poll? Um, well, it's a better poll for Labour than there has been for a while because they had plateaued, really, over the last couple of months. Um, and it's another poorer poll for the SNP um, I always put a bit of a health warning or not a health warning, I always put a caveat on these things because um, any other government which had been in power for 16 years um, and whose two previous leaders have both in the last few years faced some sort of either police or court action would be not sort of neck and neck they'd be losing massively and be ready to get kicked out of government. And the fact that the SNP are not in that position um, says a lot about something, which is probably for another podcast. Um, I I remain of the view, as we will explore in just a second, um, that Labour are very much the underdogs for this election, this general election in Scotland. Um, It's very clear that Labour is the opposition in Scotland now. Uh, It's not the Tories. It hasn't really been the Tories um, for a long time and arguably it never uh, really was the Tories um, to be honest with you um, so I think that's clear, I think Labour are going to go up from their current one seat and they're going to go up very significantly from that um, but I don't think they'll get to the point where they are actually beating the SNP at this general election, so the polling is interesting, um, not least also because of the fact incidentally that independence vote remains really strong uh, as it always has throughout all these polls, even when the SNP is falling. I think it's an interesting poll. I think it's kind of on trend, um, although, as I say, a little bit better for Labour than you might expect, a little bit worse for the SNP. But I still think, ultimately, that what we're going to have here at the end of the next general election is the SNP winning this election. I just want to say that Professor Sir John Curtis, whose wisdom we always trust on these things, says that uh, the general election would be finally poised with both parties, the SNP and Labour, on course to return... 24 MPs. Just before we hear from Jeff, let's check in again with the First Minister from last week's podcast because we were asking him about exactly this, number of seats for the SNP. Have a listen. Do you think you'll lose any seats? 
Again, I'm not. I'm not going to get into a numbers oh, game. Uh, no, I don't hypothesize. Any, I don't want a number. I don't no, want a number. Do you lose any? I don't go into the election thinking that we're going to lose seats. I go. I go into elections looking to win seats. Yeah, but see, the, but your question is the key here, right? Well, well first of all, I, I'm I'm unconvinced about the um, red Tories strategy. If you look at polling on the issues you've mentioned, for example, the two child crap and the bedroom tax, polling supports them. I think the reason they're controversial is because they're Tory policies, not because of the policies themselves. If it had been Labour policies all along, we would hardly talk about those policies, I don't think. So I'm not convinced that it might, might, it might cut through in the bubble, totally unconvinced it cuts through outside the bubble. But I think actually it's all moot, right? Because the, I would say the biggest issue that you have at elections is the high watermark. I mean, there have been two remarkable elections in the last, in both parliaments in the last elections. You're sitting on 48 seats at Westminster, 64 seats at Holyrood, both on about 45%. Mm-hmm. And it is, I'll answer your question, <laughs> yes, you're going to lose seats. Andy McKeever on last week's podcast as well. Jeff, come in on this then. So this suggests 24 seats for the SNP, which would be half what they have right now. Yeah, uh, and Andy's right, they're going to lose seats. And uh, the question is how many seats they're going to lose. This is a huge red flag uh, for the, the SNP. And I, the reason it's such an important thing, you know, listen, you, you talked to, <clears throat> to my experience in politics working with the SNP. We had six MPs, guys. Um, and the times have changed markedly. Now, Hamza Youssef has said on the record, uh, at his independence, uh, a way day, and Dundee, two members, that if they win a majority of seats, that is a mandate to negotiate for independence. This poll suggests they are going to lose, um, as you say, uh, half of those seats. And actually, uh, you're in the real fine margins now of him losing his own mandate by his own words. That's how serious this is. Because how can a First Minister who has lost his mandate to negotiate for independence by his own strategy continue in office following that election. So this is hugely, hugely important. And I think if I were an advisor to the SNP right now, I'd be sitting around the table and saying, OK, forget the spin, forget the nonsense. What are we going to do to try and arrest this decline? Because Andy might be right. The SNP still might win uh, uh, by, by seats. And it's very much possible that could happen. But this poll's telling us otherwise. And the trend is only going one way. And so how the SNP approached the general election is so, so important. And in my opinion, I think that, that where they've gone wrong, particularly, and we've covered it on this podcast, is the SNP traditionally, uh, in their early years in government, managed to navigate their way to a position where they were on side of public opinion on a range of different issues. I think that trend's changed. And they seem to be... Uh, on the side of issues that public opinion isn't really being carried. And they haven't done enough when they have taken a position to persuade the public of the merits of their position. These things need to be addressed and they need to be addressed pronto. Um, The other parts of this poll uh, that we want to pull out on the podcast today, voters expressing growing dissatisfaction with the SNP-Scottish Green Party cooperation agreement. A majority of people in Scotland now no longer support the arrangement. 40% actively oppose it, including almost a quarter of voters who supported the SNP at the 2019 general election. Jeff, that's, that's astonishing because 
Hamza Yusuf on last week's podcast was kind of suggesting that actually this it's, it's not that big a deal when he when he speaks to people on doorsteps. I think was the phrase he used. It doesn't come up. This poll suggests people do really care about this coalition agreement and they don't like it. Yeah, and I think that the, the last time this poll was questioned, it was eeksy peeksy. It was 36, 37, 36, uh, um, 37 either way in terms of a poll or being in yeah. favour of it. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and now there's a clear uh, uh, divide there and a gap uh, emerging in terms of those who are opposed to it. And uh, I go back to what I said earlier on today. Uh, they need mm. to be able to sell the merits of this deal. If they don't, it's not worth its weight in gold, as Hamza said, following his election as leader and as first minister. And therefore, it needs to be addressed. These are the sorts of things that I say that the advisor should be getting around the table with Hamza and saying, right, what's on the table here, guys? Uh, is, is this green deal worth its weight in gold or is it worth its weight in straw? Because ultimately... They need to go through every single issue that they face right now that's challenging uh, and turn them into opportunities where they can. And that might need some tough decisions. Now, Hamza said to us in the podcast last week that he's willing to piss people off. I wonder who he's going to piss off might change on the back of these types of polls. I think the other thing to remember here as well is the old politician's trick, right? There's the, there's the old politician's trick of, you know, that's not what I'm hearing on the doorsteps. Um, of course, if everybody, if every politician was accurately hearing the right thing on the doorsteps, then they would all win at the same time. But um, the, if you go to somebody in the street and say, what's affecting you? What are your priorities? They will say, why is my job not paying me enough to live on? You know, why is my kid only getting an hour of PE every two weeks in school? Why, when I went to the doctor the other day, was there a queue down the street and I couldn't get in? Th- those are the things they will instinctively say. But if you say to them what do you think of the cooperation agreement or what do you think of the future of devolution and the constitution and so on, they will be engaged on that as well. So in a lot of these cases, it's it's the difference between prompting somebody to answer a question and asking them what they uh, think about life in general. So I think Hamza was probably correct uh, when he said last week that it doesn't come up on the doorsteps. It doesn't come up on the doorsteps because it's not absolutely top of the priority list, but when you engage somebody on it, they will generally record they don't think it's going very well. So, you know, it's a little of both. Just want to pull out another really interesting thing um, that John, Professor Sir John Curtis has said during the True North's event on this this morning. So there's been a, a kind of interactive discussion uh, breaking down the polling results with mem- um, team members from True North and with Professor Sir John Curtis. Um, he has said this morning, Labour's progress in Holyrood polling could leave the Scottish Conservatives as the kingmaker after the 2026 election. This is because both an SNP Green and Labour Lib Dem coalition would fall short of a majority. That's quite a striking outcome from all of this as well, Jeff. It is, and it's a very... I mean, I don't want to focus too much on the the Scottish election for obvious reasons. We've got to get a general election through. But it's a a very interesting... I mean, I was was listening to this morning. And by the way, can I just say how committed I am to this podcast? As we were speaking, uh, my colleagues were hosting an event with Professor Sir John Curtis. And I I said, no, no, not for me, guys. I'm committed to Andy and Callum. So we're going to discuss this. So I I really just want that noted, reflected... Um, perhaps put a press release. Or this something. is the bigger event, to be fair. <laughs> um, so, so uh, a, a, a very interesting outcome if that were to transpire. But I, I'm not going to, yeah. you know, spend too much time on it, Callum, because I think this general election will yeah, dictate fun. a lot about how the, fu- the, the the battle in 2026 will be 
fought and the parameters in which it will be fought. Let's be clear though, we talk about kingmakers historically. This is not a standard kingmaker situation because both of those entities, whether it's SNP Green or Labour Lib Dem, will want to absolutely minimise any relationship whatsoever they have with the Tories. So mm. there's a reason why the Tory party is the only party in the Scottish Parliament that has never been in government, and that is because nobody will ever go into government with them. So the Tory party is unique in Europe in being <laughs> the only party of the centre-right that can never be in government, ever, because nobody will go into government with them. You- the closest they've come, as Jeff will know, was um, a- an agreement that Alex Salmon tried as hard as possible never to talk about, which was Annabel Goldie propping up the SNP minority government between 2007 and 2011. That's the closest they've come. It's the closest they'll ever come. Um, and this will be a case of how can we get over the line without having to give them anything or without having to talk to them. So it's kind of, it's kingmaker and then back in your box, please, is really what this is. Yeah, can I just add to that, which uh, is quite funny. Is, uh, is this your legacy, Andy, of working with the Tories that they're the only party in Europe that nobody will work with? I mean, that's some <laughs> legacy, mate, honestly. <laughs> I, have, I have many... I have many legacies. You know, I worked for the bank just before it collapsed. Well, I've got a good record here. Which bank? Which bank? Well, I was at. A, I went to HBOS to work Did in the you? corporate banking team. Yes, about six months before that. the banking crisis. Yeah, right. I take my track record with me yeah. wherever I go. Uh, you know, it's brilliant, isn't it? You, 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 you're, you're sitting there. Applying for your role at the Tories, you know, need a bit of help, and uh, you're. Uh, oh, listen, I've brought down the world economy, guys. I mean, I, I can make a real impact here. Why don't you have me in at the, at the Scottish Conservatives and see if I can improve your chances? <laughs> oh, I'm well, there was in, in, uh, to be slightly more serious about it. This is why I was really about the first person to say, right this is done, right? This game is up now because this is genuinely the only party of the centre-right which can't ever get into government. So you have a whole swathe of voters who broadly are sort of liberal conservative type voters who in every other country in Europe are represented in government half the time. And in Scotland never, never have been, never are and never can be because of the toxicity of the party. This is where the murder freezer, you know, this is why Murdo wanted to start a new party because of the impossibility of ever being in government. So um, I did, in fairness, at least I have recognised the problem. Others have just (laughs) ploughed on regardless uh, and crossed their fingers and hoped for the best. So (laughs) I I feel sorry. Andy, I'm just joshing. Um, You're a fabulous person, a great strategist and a good communicator. Well, that's what I was going to say. But he doesn't make any good bets. I know we're going to come to that at the end. (laughs) Yeah, we are going to... We've got... We've been been talking about your bets for the last couple of weeks, actually, the two of you. So we will actually confirm what those bets are on this podcast. Hollywood Sources is proud to be brought to you by the Scotch Whiskey Association's Made to Be Measured campaign. To become Scotch whisky, distilled spirit is carefully crafted before maturing in Scotland for at least three years, although it's often decades. That's why Scotch whisky should always be sipped, savoured and enjoyed responsibly. The Chief Medical Officer recommends that adults who choose to drink alcohol consume no more than 14 units per week. 
But Scottish government research shows that two-thirds of Scots are not aware of those guidelines. The made-to-be-measured campaign seeks to build greater awareness of the responsible consumption guidelines and the units of alcohol contained in popular drinks. Scotch whisky, it's made to be measured. Find out more at scotch-whisky.org.uk forward slash made to be measured. There's one more part of the poll that we want to talk about on the podcast today, and it actually um, uh, really feeds off something that came up on the podcast with Hamza Yusuf last week. Uh, here is a conversation that the First Minister and Jeff had uh, during last week's recording. Me as a politician, but I think most politicians ultimately, at heart, end up being people pleasers. Look, you get one shot at this. Mm. One shot at this. Don't look back in 18 months' time and go, I wish I'd done this, I wish I'd said that. Yeah. Now, if I was to characterise your first period, opening period as First Minister, whether it's been the highly protected marine areas, whether it's been the deposit return scheme, whether it's been trying to mollify EPC and boiler systems, whatever the issue is, it seems to me that you're trying to find the path to least resistance. You're trying to appeal to everyone. You're trying to not piss off everyone. And when you do that, you don't appeal to anyone, in my experience. So you mentioned the programme for government, and and, and Andrew mentioned you going forward and trying to put a usivism on it. Are we going to get more conviction? Because I know how much this job means to you. I know how much it means to you. But I don't think they know. And I don't think the people on the ground know. So when are you going to introduce yourself to them? And and that's exactly what the programme for government, and to an extent, we're trying to do this summer. But you have to, when you come into the role, as I have, and there are issues that are dominating, bubbling away, causing challenges, there is a bit of a need to sometimes, it's not entirely clear the decks, but there is a need to have to say, right, there are some issues here that need dealt with. The alcohol advertising was a classic example. I make uh, no apologies at all for saying that I believe that we have to tackle Scotland's uh, problem, uh, uh, problematic relationship with alcohol. And the Made to be Measured campaign, Mark and I from Scottish Whiskey Association, were just talking about how we can do that uh, collaboratively together. But the alcohol advertising uh, uh, consultation, the disinformation around it was causing such concern about things we were never going to do. So there's a need to sometimes uh, clear the decks uh, of of certain problematic issues. But you're absolutely right. You you kind of hit the nail on the head, me as a politician. But I think most politicians ultimately, at heart, end up being people pleasers because we think, well, what gets us the most votes? Because we please that side and please that side and bring everybody together. It's good for the country anyway in terms of a, a way of progressing, but actually, you know, it could be electorally uh, quite, uh, quite, quite uh, helpful uh, as well. But you absolutely, as a leader, as a first minister, you have to have conviction and choose a side. You have to have conviction and choose a side. Well, as part of the poll today, uh, approval ratings of party leaders, Scottish Labour's Anna Starwar is the most popular figure. He's been on the podcast. You can scroll back and have a listen. Hamza Yusuf continues to be viewed less favourably by the public. And Jeff, I suppose that's that's the point that you were making last week, to be a, a politician of conviction in some ways. Yeah, and and and, and I, you know, I, I like Hamza. Let me say that he's he's really good fun to be around. Uh, he does care about this role. He's very passionate about it. He's charming and he's done really well, I think, in interviews and in debates within Parliament and out with. But I still want to see that level of conviction. This is who I am, and this is what I'm going to try and achieve uh, on behalf of the country. 
of Scotland and we're not seeing that just yet and, and I just want to reflect on this poll just so we know the scale of the challenge before him personally so his favourable ratings are 22% his unfavourable ratings are 45% now that is minus 23 now Anna Sarwar's on minus 3 pretty good relatively speaking but still negative figures he's the first minister of Scotland He's the leader of the SNP and he's only just recently been elected. That is a huge mountain to climb in the minds of the people of Scotland if you're going to change things around. And so I really just want to see, and he's mentioned programme for government, he's put a lot of store in uh, the programme for government. Are we going to find out a little bit more about what he wants to be known for and what he wants to achieve? It is so, so important, not just for him personally, but for the party and the government as well. With all of that in mind, let us turn our attention to Andy and Jeff's insight on politics and some bets that they have made. Uh, Two bets, in fact. So remember what we've just discussed by way of the polling, okay? That is the context by which these bets which were made, oh, a few weeks ago now, I think towards the end of July even, uh, that is, you know, that is the context with which to analyse these. Um, Who wants to remind us what the bets are? Andy, do you want to go for it? Yes, I mean, they, they were both invented by Jeff, but I'm very happy to outline <laughs> what the bets are. So and the, one of the reasons why I'm so keen on these bets is that um, I've not made a dime from this podcast and I'm looking <laughs> forward to raking in a little bit of cash for the first time. Can I just, sorry, just interrupt just very quickly to say, Callum, is now the right time to say that you and I are taking some money each week for this podcast? <laughs> yeah, <I'm> not... <laughs> That's what's paying for my next holiday. No, in the, for the avoidance of doubt, not one of us has taken any money from this podcast so far, just so we know. We like to be glad, transparent. Very glad to hear we, that. We like to be transparent about our finances on this podcast. Yeah, we're all broke. Um, uh, so here is bet number one, um, that Jeff thinks that the Labour Party in Scotland will beat the SNP in terms of number of seats at the general election in 2024. So Labour will get more seats than the SNP. This is what Jeff thinks. I Note, think the, the SNP the poll, will get more seats than Labour. And the poll today suggests they are neck and neck. <laughs> right, which so is that's, beautiful. That's bet number one. Yeah. Bet number two, which is not about the general election, bet number two is about the Scottish election of 2026. Uh, Jeff thinks that the Green Party will either get the same or fewer seats. And I think that we... Will, that they will get more. So I am backing the Nationalist parties in both elections and Jeff is backing the Unionist parties in both elections. <laughs> Let me just say, right, we talked about optimism and pessimism earlier and I mean, oh my God. See, these SNP types, they're always glass half empty or oh, we're going to lose this and we're going to lose that. You've been in power for about 150 years. You get like 50% of the vote for most of our adult lives. You want to take a lesson from a Scottish Tory in how to be pessimistic. I will teach you what life is really like on the dark side of politics, right? Yeah, well, I, I, I can't lose on the general election bet. The SNP win more seats. I'm more than happy with that. Don't get me wrong. Um, but if they... If they don't, um, you know, I'm, I'm quids in. Uh, and, and, and taking money from you, Andy, would be very, very satisfying indeed. But I, I, on, a, on a semi-serious note, um, I, particularly with the general election, momentum is such a big thing in politics. And Labour have established momentum. And, and, and yes, you can argue to varying degrees, but let's look where their vote was 
uh, only a year ago. Uh, it has increased exponentially in that time. So there's no doubt there is momentum with them. And in a context that, uh, um, that will be basically an election fought on who's going to be the next prime minister on cost of living crisis, what meaningful policies will be put in place by uh, both parties ahead of that election. I think it's very hard for the SNP without a Nicola Sturgeon, without an Alex Salmond at the helm to really gain relevance. And in that context, I think there's a real chance now that the SNP may fall short in terms of seats. But if they do, and it is there to be one, and it's so important how they approach this election, I'll be more than happy, very pleased. Now, <laughs> to the point about the Greens. If you accept on this current trajectory, and you accept that that point about momentum I've just made follows into the, the, the Scottish election 26, now a lot can happen in that period, then I just don't see how the Green Party, who have relied heavily on... Uh, SNP second votes on the list are going to increase, improve their position uh, and so therefore it's a bet, it's a gamble, I get it I think it's a pretty decent uh, bet and, and given that you know, Andy brought down the world economy and indeed brought down <laughs> the Conservative Party's chances of ever being in government really I think it's quite a good bet Well let me not rise to that particular bait, let me instead <laughs> Explain why in the first uh, why both why I will win both bets right here is the reason why. <laughs> Firstly, Labour um, have we've talked about soft unionists and soft nationalists before, right? Labour have got all the soft unionists back. They were voting Tory because the Tories were the best bet to stop NDRF two. They're not the best bet anymore, and now they're voting Labour, so they've got them back. But the problem with Scottish Labour is they're not bold enough to get soft nationalists back in a large enough number to actually win. The Labour Party in Scotland is on the cusp of a potentially massive win. We're going to talk about Tom Hunter in a second, and it's actually linked to all of that. If they can tap in to the centrist agenda in Scotland, then they're on the cusp of, of winning and properly winning. But that will involve moving on devolution and creating a new devolution in the concept of a new union. If they do that, then yes they will win the general election. But I don't think they're going to do that, and I think that's why they're not going to win. As far as the Greens go, I mean, I said last week they've won the lottery without having to buy a ticket, and that every poll supports that, right? They are not like the Lib Dems in Westminster who suffered from being in coalition. They're exactly the opposite, because their supporters love what they're doing, and a lot of the supporters on the far left of the SNP like what the Greens are doing as well. Um, and if that agreement at any point splits up or if it's looking shaky or whatever, uh, you're going to get a massive influx of voters from the left wing of the SNP voting Green, especially on the second vote, because the entirety of the Green campaign is going to be, see, voting SNP in the second vote. That's a right waste of time. If you vote for us, you're going to get the same outcome anyway, which is us in government with the SNP. But instead of having 70 whatever seats, we're going to have 80 or 90. Mm. So just be smart and vote for us in the second vote. That's what's going to happen. I mean, they are quids in for this next election. It is madness for Jeff to take that bet. I honestly can't believe he's done it. Yeah. Andy, just, uh, I mean, we'll see who's mad uh, come the uh, general election and we'll see how confident you are about your second bet. But just on a, on a serious point, you, you mentioned what Labour have to do on the centre ground to, to really win and win big. What, in your view, does the SNP need to do, uh, given that we both accept that they need to improve their game ahead of the general election? So this is a counterintuitive answer, and it will not please a lot of people um, uh, from the nationalist side of the fence. I think the best thing for the SNP 
would be to lose the nationalist majority in parliament but stay as the largest party in 2026. Because I think what the SNP need is for independence to be off the table. That is how they will be able to focus on rebuilding an actual case for being a good, solid government that knows how to run things. If they can stop focusing on independence at all costs, which is all they're able to focus on at the moment, then actually I think the best way for them to stay in government is to is to still be in government after 2026, but for independence not to be in the short term or medium term on the table. They will then be forced to work with other parties. They'll be forced to deal with the issues that are actually in front of them and not blame everything on Westminster and blame everything on independence. It's exactly what Salmond and you, Jeff, did in 2007. You weren't talking about independence then because nobody thought it was really on the table. So you actually got things done and that's why you were successful and that's what they need to do again. Very interesting. So let me put this to you then because we discussed this as well with uh, Hamza last week. That's open to the SNP right now. They could yeah. abandon the Green Power de- deal, uh, sharing deal, right now. So, would you advise them to do that right now? One hundred percent. Right now, and I would advise them right now to start talking Spicy. to the Labour Party at Westminster about how to create a better and more enhanced devolution settlement. That is how the SNP goes forward. The chances of them doing that are less than zero. (laughs) But that is what I would advise them to do. How can you be less than zero out of interest? (laughs) See, see, when I said less than zero, I thought to myself, I've screwed myself there. (laughs) It's like a politician's approval rating. Shame. You know, it was a good little speech as well. Right at the end there, I just... I I was so impressed with that. Honestly, really (laughs) forthright. This is brilliant stuff. And then he went... Because Callum's got so... Less because, than because, zero. Because of Callum's level of respect for me, he's going to edit that bit. I know he is. When sure. people listen back to this podcast, they are not going to hear the words I'm speaking no, right now. They, they, they are, because I'm going to really dwell on it in every answer I give from now on <laughs> forth. But uh, it's, it's, a, it's just a wee point about society. I hate it when folks say, yeah, no, I'm 110% or 150%. Oh, go, no, no, just say 100 fucking percent, would you? Yeah, uh, I can't cope with that. I can't. That's my head in that stuff. There's no such thing as 110%. Yeah. I really, uh, really have issues with that, I have to say. I'm with you. Email us anytime. The inbox is always open. And the email address is hello at hollyroodsources.com. Uh, right, where are we? We've got a few minutes left on the pod. We've got a couple of things to do. First of all, then, a couple of quick fire answers from you both, because a couple of questions came in that were aimed at you as a result of uh, last week's episode. Uh, so let me do these. Um, this is from Alistair for Andy. What's the SNP's biggest policy achievement in government? And what's Humza's biggest achievement so far? Brackets, winning the leadership contest is not an acceptable answer. Andy. Hmm. Oh, ay, 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 ay. Um, you can say this answer with um, less than zero conviction. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but with one hundred and ten percent effort. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> biggest policy achievement so far um, is probably, uh, and in fairness, it's not necessarily unique to the SNP because it happened down in England as well. But um, it's probably the extension of state-funded nursery care. I think that was a game changer for young families in terms of the pound in their pocket uh, and also a game changer for uh, young mothers getting back into the workforce. 
So I think that was a genuinely, potentially quite transformational policy. So there you go with that one. Yep. Hamza's biggest achievement nice. since becoming leader, that one's an easier one for me to answer. His biggest achievement since becoming leader is re-entering the international league tables on school performance. Uh, our schooling is uh, a, a bit of a secret at the moment in Scotland, partly because of data and partly because people don't want to talk about it because they're also worried at what is actually going on in our schools. And now we're going to find out. So uh, I said to him last week as well, but well done to him for doing that. It is critically mm. important and it could have a very significant impact, not just on our kids, but on our economy, because let's not forget the future economy is totally underpinned by what is happening in schools. Yeah. Uh, this one is from Simon for Jeff. Uh, Jeff, why do you think political dialogue and disagreement has got so nasty in recent years? And what can we all do in practical terms to improve it? Which is quite a big question, but an important one. Yeah, it's an interesting question. And actually, I'm not going to agree with the premise fully. So I'm a, I'm a really exciting guy in my weekends. And last weekend, I was actually going through a lot of uh, old YouTube videos of what uh, Commons debates. And um, there's a lot of spicy interchanges uh, there and exchanges, rather, uh, between politicians that are no more or less hostile than there are today. What I think is different, though, and, I, and I'm afraid to be a bit of a cop-out, it is the acceleration and advent of social media. We have a number of uh, anonymous keyboard warriors with accounts that you know are not the individual, and they are toxic in, in what they're saying, and people are retweeting and sharing, and it's, it's almost like one-upmanship, well, they're saying that, I'll say this, and it all stems a lot of the time from people that don't actually... Uh, or not willing to tell us who they are. And I do think we have to get to a situation where these uh, technology companies, social media companies, regulate um, uh, these accounts and say, no, you're, you are a person, you're a named individual, and this is your words, and these are your comments, and if you're willing to make them, fine. Uh, then you'll have to uh, face the repercussions. And, and I do think that that's caused a lot of the animosity and the febrile nature of political discourse just now. I really do. Uh, it's not the only answer, and perhaps there is a case to be said that things have got a little bit more binary and, and toxic, but I do think that it's really amplified by our social media networks. Yeah. Uh, it's well proven as well that negativity gets engagement. That's the thing. So when you Sens are negative... Sensationalism, yeah. yeah. Totally. And when, so when you, when you amp it up, that's when people share it and like it and comment on it, and you know that feeds basically the, the most one of the most basic human principles for attention, uh, I think. So, yeah, totally get you on that. Uh, thank you. You can email questions, by the way, anytime. Uh, we gather them and periodically we get Jeff and Andy to answer them. So uh, feel free to ping us them. Hello at hollywoodsources.com. Right, we literally just have a few minutes left, but it's an important issue uh, that we want to talk about just to finish the podcast this week. Tom Hunter, uh, the businessman, has said, indeed Sir Tom Hunter, I should say, has called for a grown-up debate on how Scotland could become an economic powerhouse. He suggests that corporation tax, uh, which is paid by companies on their profits, should be cut for firms operating in three key global growth sectors. That's the phrase he uses. Renewables and the low-carbon manufacturing sector, life sciences and medical technology, and software, big data, and artificial intelligence. The UK government's got the rate at 25%. Um, but Andy, what do we make of this? Because he's really sort of questioning, I suppose, what would make sense as a as a way forward for businesses and for the economy at large how does this feed into kind of current political conversation 
Well, that is a very good question, and the answer to it is very depressing, which is that I don't think it does. I don't think it does feed into current political discourse and conversation, and I think this is one of the only countries in Europe that I could say that about. Um, what Tom Hunter has produced today, because he also talked about immigration powers for Scotland as well, which is an important, you know, given our demographic issues, is a really, really important part of this as well as more tax powers. The difficulty is that, um, you know, and Tom Hunter has absolutely nailed this in my view and nailed what is required, but the difficulty is that our political discourse and our constitutional discourse actually doesn't allow for what he's saying to become a reality. Now, he talked about Ireland a lot today in this paper. Um, the Irish political parties, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, are both pretty much on the same path in terms of their laser focus on growth, laser focus on economic growth uh, as the means to uh, make things better for everybody in society, top and bottom, and the means to pay for public services. There's absolutely no qualms about that whatsoever. And the same is true for Scandinavian countries that we like to compare ourselves to a lot. But the sad truth is that we are nothing like these countries. We are nothing like Ireland and we are nothing like Scandinavia because we simply do not have the focus on the economy and on economic growth that they do. We talk about things like the well-being economy and progressive taxation because we think it makes us sound nice, right? We think it makes us sound like we know what we're talking about and we think that's enough. But it's not enough because there's nothing progressive about taxation that leads to a lower tax take which means you can spend less on public services. It might make politicians sleep easier in their beds because they ramp up tax on people who earn a lot of money, but when it actually generates you less tax take in the end, then exactly what is the point in all of this? There is no point in it. And the problem is that the SNP are not going to take on board what Tom Hunter says because it involves tax cuts and a lot of their own supporters won't let them do it and neither will the Greens. Labour won't take on what Tom Hunter says because it involves the devolution of corporation tax and they think that is a problem for uh, the left of centre and a problem for the union in terms of disaggregating corporation tax from the centre. And the Tories won't take it on because it involves more devolution. So exactly who's going to? And that's the great sadness of this proposal, which is an excellent proposal, is that not one political party is going to pay the blindest bit of notice of it. I love this article from Sir Tom Hunter, and I am an SNP supporter. Uh, And and when I read it, I actually reflected a lot of what Andy's just said, because I don't think it can happen just now. And that is so sad, because I tell you, if I was in government, I'd have Tom Hunter into my office immediately and to say, right, how do we make this happen? And there's a, partic- right. there's a particular uh, section that, if, I'm, if you may, just let me read out. So here's my suggestion to Holyrood and Westminster. Make all of Scotland a 15% corporate tax zone for three global growth sectors, renewables and low-carbon manufacturing services, life science and medical te- technologies, and software, big data, and AI. Damn right. That's actually the bones of a strategy. Um, you might not get all the way, but I would get him in the room and say, how do we make this ha- uh, happen? How do we get a coalition of the willing across industry uh, and bring the governments together? Because Sir Tom Hunter packs a punch and he knows people that packs a punch. But you need a government and you need a political uh, uh, spectrum that's willing to engage. And right now we don't have that. But that is the sort of thing. That's the sort of ambitious thinking that we need. And I tell you, you know, Hamza would be wise to look at that when he thinks about economic growth and achieving it and the reindustrialization, the green reindustrialization of our country, because these are the types of things that will really help achieve that. Sadly, as Andy says, 
it just feels very, very distant just now. Oh, interesting. I wonder if we should try and get Sir Tom Hunter on the podcast at some point, actually. Perhaps he's listening. Uh, if so, get in touch. But we'll, get, we'll, we'll make contact with Sir Tom and see if we can have a conversation around that in uh, a future episode. Uh, Jeff and Andy, thank you both very much. Uh, great to have you on. Uh, great to debrief on Hamza Yusuf and crucially to piece it together with that poll from Servation for True North. Uh, really fascinating, actually, to put uh, what Hamza was saying to us last week on the podcast uh, up against the data on what it is showing right now. Of course, you can still listen back to the First Minister of Scotland on this podcast. It was last week's episode, so just have a little look in your feed or you can watch it on YouTube. Thanks for being here with us this week. We will talk to you again soon.